Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah 29. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with the thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night, as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakes with hunger, not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst, not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near Draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. The scripture says of itself that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Our God, we come before you because you alone have the words of eternal life and by your spirit give understanding and instruction to us who cannot understand without you. And so would you do that for us now? Open our eyes. Show us Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, in the late 50s, a guy named Pete Seeger wrote the words to a song. Well, he didn't actually write the words to the song. He used Ecclesiastes 3 and put the words to a tune. And then later on in the early mid-60s, a band called The Birds popularized the song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Some of you can probably hear the song in your head right now. And, uh, you know, in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8, you know, it's speaking of there's a time for every season under heaven. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to sow or plant, a time to reap the harvest. And in the last verse of that section is a time for war and a time for peace. And they added, Pete Seeger and the birds added to that end, a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. And, you know, the song is written as a Vietnam War protest, and they're saying, hey, you know, this time for war is over. We need a time of peace. Well, regardless of the accuracy of their understanding of that point in history, their understanding of Ecclesiastes 318 is relatively correct, that there is a time for different things. And where we've just come from in Isaiah actually mirrors this in Isaiah 28. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? In the last section of 28, God is saying there's a time when someone sows. There's a time when someone reaps. You don't plow the ground continually. You plow. There's a time for planting. There's a time for harvesting. God continues this thought in Isaiah 29 in that there is a coming time of distress, a time of apparent destruction for Jerusalem, for Israel but also that there is a time for deliverance, a time of salvation. And the reason we need to see this is because God wants his people to see both. If you just have a vision, if you just have a view of destruction, of distress, you're left hopeless. But God wants his people to see both. And that's what we see in Isaiah 29, is that God causes his people to see a coming salvation out of apparent destruction. And so see that as we move through Isaiah 29 today, is that God causes his people to see a time of salvation through or in spite of a time of apparent distress and destruction. When we see a time of distress in the first section, in verses 1 to 4, verse 1, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Now, Ariel, if you are, have been corrupted like me, you see that word and think, little mermaid? 
My mind went there. If yours didn't, God bless you. What is and why is Isaiah repeating this name or this word multiple times in reference to Jerusalem? First of all, we know that it is Jerusalem. We know that it is the city of David because it says in verse 1, the city where David encamped. And more specifically, in verse 8, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Okay, So we know that the city, Ariel, is Mount Zion, Jerusalem. But why does Isaiah use this term? Well, the word Ariel in Hebrew is a homonym. It is a word that has two different meanings. So children remember this from grade school, and you adults remember this, the word bark and bark. They are spelled the same, they're pronounced the same, but there is a bark of a dog and there is a bark of a tree. Two different things. Isaiah is using this as a play on words. He starts with the compound in Hebrew, Ariel, Lion of God. That is one meaning of the word. And so you could say Lion of God, Lion of God, the city where David encamped. This is a place that is strong, that is proud, but that is sadly empty. Its feasts and its sacrifices are external only, and they don't really have an internal heart change. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. So Ariel is Lion of God. Ariel is also altar hearth or altar. And you see that this Lion of God, in verse 3, I will distress Jerusalem, I will distress Ariel, though she be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel, like an altar. The place where things are slain and burned. And so in this play on words, there is an irony where Isaiah is calling the city of Jerusalem this proud, noble symbol, the lion, but you will become to me like an altar on which things are slain and you will be laid low. Because isn't that what God says? I will encamp around you, besiege you with towers. Verse 4, you'll be brought low. From the earth you shall speak. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. God uses these words just over and over. Dust, dirt, low. I, the vision I had in my head, I shouldn't say the word vision, a picture I had in my head is just being put on the ground with someone kneeling on your back and holding your face into the dirt. And all you can do is just barely get out a whisper into the dust because your lungs have no air in them. That is the picture that God is putting forth here of how he's going to make Jerusalem an altar, bring them low, put them in the dirt and dust. This is the apparent distress the apparent destruction whenever Jerusalem is besieged and camped all around. But what appears to be, in verses 1 to 4, the destruction of Israel, God actually uses and turns to the destruction of Jerusalem's enemies, to his enemies. We see that in the next section, there is a contrast. Verses 1 to 4, Lion of God, you're going to be like an altar on which things are slain. But... Verse 5, 
The multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. The multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. The enemies of God coming at Jerusalem are going to be burnt up like the chaff. Whenever you would thresh grain, the the husks of the grain blow up into the air and, and just get blown away or burned in the fire. Because God is going to be visit them. You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, with earthquake, great noise, whirlwind, tempest, the flame of a devouring fire. And God gives, Isaiah gives an illustration of what this is going to be like for Israel's enemies. Verse 7, the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, so we know that God is talking about Israel's enemies. The multitude of nations that come against you are going to be like someone who dreams and is dissatisfied when they wake up. Isaiah uses the occurrence that we have, someone who is eating when they're hungry. You've probably had an experience of, of excuse me, eating when you're dreaming. Oh, I'm so satisfied. This food's so good. And you wake up. It's like, well, I'm hungry. I'm not satisfied. It was only a dream. I've had several dreams. Maybe it's the dry, arid climate around here. I have had dreams as of late. You're drinking. Oh, this, this water is so good. I'm so thirsty and this satisfies me so much. But then you wake up. I wake up. Man, I'm really parched. I'm not satisfied at all. I was dreaming because I need a drink. And the dissatisfaction that you have when you wake up from a dream and it's not real is the way Israel's enemies are going to feel when they come against Jerusalem. As when a hungry man dreams and he wakes, is not satisfied. When a thirsty man dreams, he awakes and is not satisfied. So shall all the multitude of nations, verse 8, be that fight against Mount Zion. God is going to turn their dream of conquering Israel, of conquering Jerusalem into a non-reality, dissatisfaction. Now, God actually does this at one point in Israel's history. In particular, it's not 100% clear or 100% certain what is exactly referenced here, but we see this pattern repeated throughout history, in redemptive history. In particular view here, Whether or not this is the particular case, this is certainly an example when the Assyrian king Sennacherib comes and he surrounds Jerusalem. They are besieged all about. There's a a position called the Rebshakeh who is harassing and haranguing the Israelites on the wall of Jerusalem. You know, you think this thing that Hezekiah has promised to you is really going to come to pass? No, we are going to conquer you just like we conquered every other kingdom. We are all around you. You have no hope. It causes King Hezekiah, along with Isaiah, to cry out to God and ask for deliverance. And that night, Sennacherib's army is visited by the Lord of hosts and 185,000 Assyrians are slain in a night. Now, whether or not that is the precise instance God Isaiah is prophesying here, it is certainly an example of the pattern, isn't it? God visits his people with distress. See if this mirrors anything in your life. God visits his people with distress 
It causes them to cry out to him, and he visits his people with deliverance. And that's something that, that's a pattern to keep in mind that God uses not only in the lives of his people here in Isaiah 29 and throughout redemptive history, it's a pattern that he uses in your life. Because what does the New Testament say? When we are weak, you could say when we are besieged all around, when we have no hope, when we are weakest, God's strength is made manifest. My strength is perfected in weakness, the New Testament says. That is, it is, it is shown, it is displayed, because we have no hope except for him, and he visits us with salvation. Now, that incident with Sennacherib, with Israel, that's a historical occurrence. It's also a pattern throughout redemptive history. It's a pattern in our lives but there are people who don't see it. There are people who only see one thing. They have a two-dimensional view, you could say, because what God begins to speak about next in Isaiah is the blindness that people have to God's work. Look in verse 9. So, first section, distress to God's people, but deliverance from God's enemies, but then there is blindness to this work. Verse 9, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, covered your heads. There is a lack of understanding of what God is doing. And then Isaiah, I love, one of the reasons I love Isaiah is he, he gives his own illustrations. It's like when someone hands a book that is sealed to someone who can read. So imagine, Isaiah is saying, imagine a closed book. And it, you hand it to someone and say, read this. I can't read this, it's sealed, it's closed. Or when someone hands a book to someone who can't read, saying, read this. I can't read. A few weeks ago, well, over the course of the past several months, my son, Leif, who's two and a half, um, he opens his books and he says he's reading. You know, I'm reading books. And so I'll let him read his books. And of course, he's just looking at pictures. And one day, one, one morning recently, he said, Daddy, can you read to me? And I said, no, Leif, you can read your books on your own. And finally, he said, but Daddy, I can't weed. <laughs> it's like, if, yes. The ridiculousness of the situation of giving someone a book who can't read. This is what God is saying the people of Israel are like in what he's explaining in redemptive history, this pattern of distress and deliverance. It's not that the message is hard to understand. I mean, think about the message, the core message of the gospel. God is holy. We are sinners who are not. We need a Savior in Jesus Christ who shed blood for our sins, that by faith in him we have forgiveness. One of the simplest, if not perhaps the simplest thing to understand, but isn't so much of the world so blind to it? Like someone handed a simple children's book, but they can't read. They can't see it. They don't have discerning. They don't have understanding. <clears throat> well, 
this blindness that they have, it turns into a judgment from God. Therefore, verse 14, well, we'll read 13 and 14. Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Notice one of the judgments of God upon spiritual blindness is more blindness. To take away understanding and allow his people or allow those whom he is judging to delve further and further into sin. Romans 1 mirrors this when it says, you know, that because they gave up God in their hearts, God hands them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Another preacher at one point said, beware when God gives someone what their heart desires. That in in turning away from God, that part of his judgment is actually giving them over to more sin. Giving them over to spiritual blindness. But the other thing to see here, in verse 13, Beware of your confidence in external religious observance. Now, what do I mean by that? What does it mean to draw near with their mouth, honor with lips, and hearts are far from me? Maybe it looks something like this. I read my Bible. I go to church. I'm on a ministry team. I evangelize. I pray. All those are good things, right? We are commanded to do them. But do not let that be the external and your internal be, but I still have a heart of lust, a heart of greed, a heart that loves the worldly pleasures. That is a difference between the external and the internal. Beware of that. Now, when you hear that, if you're someone like me, you think, yeah, that's me. There is this thing. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. And I have this thing that I do preaching right now. Oh, but inside, there's still this sin. I have this external, but there's a difference between the internal. And if you're anything like me, you feel that. Well, what do we do with that? Well, don't be discouraged. Thomas Watson, he said, you know, when we see our sins, like you might see your sin right now in light of this, with an external and an internal, our sins should humble us but they should never discourage us from coming to Christ. So let your sins humble you, but do not discourage you from coming to Christ. Come with me and say, Lord, I love, help my unlove. I believe, help my unbelief. Make my inside more like my outside. Well, another application we have here with drawing near with lips and hearts being far from us, is actually given by Jesus himself in Mark chapter 7 and another passage, I can't remember, maybe Matthew 11. Uh, But the disciples, so Jesus and his disciples are coming to eat. And the disciples come in with unwashed hands. And Mark begins to explain for his largely Gentile audience 
The Pharisees and scribes had a lot of traditions, a tradition of washing hands before eating and of baptizing cups and vessels and dining couches, Uh, that there was this ceremonial washing that the Pharisees and scribes would do prior to eating. And Jesus, your disciples aren't doing it, and so they're unclean. And Jesus references this passage. He quotes this and says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines of men, or teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What were the Pharisees doing? What was Jesus getting at? Commandment creep. What is commandment creep? Well, in organizations, in the military, or even in in corporate business, corporate America, people reference often something called mission creep. Well, what is mission creep? Mission creep is whenever, you know, your organization, your church has a mission. It has something that it's supposed to do, but our organization is starting to take on these other tasks that really aren't part of our mission. And so it's creeping into our mission, and it's sort of being made our mission, even though it's not supposed to be. Well, commandment creep. We have commands from the Word of God that we're to follow, And what the Pharisees had allowed to happen and been encouraging was a creep of commandments of men that really weren't commandments of God. Now, how should we beware of this in our church, in the church at large? Beware of commandment creep in the church. What do I mean? Well, this is the way we've always done things. We've done it this way for a long time. Oh, that thing? That was Joe Blow's hobby horse. If you've ever heard or ran into anything like that, remember this. It is Jesus' example of having lips that praise God, but having a heart that is far from him. Now, I'm not saying that Forest Gate in particular or the evangelical church at large is necessarily rampant with this, but we always need to be on guard from it or for it. Whatever ministry area that you're in, whatever you're dealing with, is this something that is a good, scripturally sound, standing tradition or practice that we have? Or is it, you must do it this way because it's the way we've always done it, because it was important to this guy? Just watch out for those things. We always need to be on guard because it happened to the church of Israel. This is the church. We see ourselves reflected in it and must be on guard for the same things. Well, this lack of understanding that people have, this calling Christianity foolishness, um, I want you to see that if you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your rejection and downplay of Christ, your rejection of Christianity We're saying that this is an important thing. And you saying, ain't no big deal. It is actually evidence of God's judgment. You're turning things upside down, God says. Look in verse 15 and 16. You who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us? Who knows us? Isaiah is describing people who reject God's word, who reject Christianity as being like people who say, God can't see me. 
You're turning things upside down. Can the, can the thing that is molded say to its molder? Can the clay say to the potter, you didn't make me? I mean, Isaiah personifies a piece of pottery, right? How ridiculous would it be for a piece of pottery to start speaking and say, you, you didn't make me potter. That is the upside down understanding that God is saying you have if you think that you can hide from the Lord, that this has no relevance, that this doesn't mean anything. But you don't have to remain in darkness. The light, there is a light that is Jesus Christ. And that is a light of revelation that is shown where God's work is seen. And that's what our next section is, is a revelation of God's work. There's a following through big chunks of the passage. Distress for God's people, but deliverance from God, but a blindness to being able to see it. But there is a revelation. It isn't isn't a great uh, self enlightenment. Oh, I can finally see it. God reveals his work. He takes away the blindness and enables people to see the revelation of his work. Verse 17, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? God is going to take those who are proud in understanding, proud in their understanding of what they think is understanding, and humble them. And God is going to take those who are humble and give them spiritual understanding. A Hebrew professor of mine, Ben Shaw, put it this way, God's pattern throughout redemptive history is a pattern of humbling the exalted and exalting the humble. God is going to take the forest of Lebanon, the the barren, uncultivated forest, and turn it into a fruitful field. Isaiah is beginning to point forward to the understanding that is given in redemptive history. As the light came to the Gentiles, this forest that was uncultivated gets turned into a fruitful field. And the fruitful field that was supposed to be Israel is turned into a forest. It is topsy-turvy. God uses the wisdom of the world God uses his wisdom to confound the wisdom of the world, to to turn it upside down. Look at the contrast. The deaf shall hear the words of a book. You know, previously, someone got handed a book in the passage. Someone got handed a book and said, I can't read. But what is God doing now? The deaf shall hear the words of a book. Out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. So the deaf hear, the blind see, those who are meek obtain joy, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. And then, so that's the humble, the deaf, the blind, having their situations reversed because of God. Likewise, those who are proud, exalting themselves against God, are brought down. The ruthless shall come to nothing, verse 20. The scoffers cease and all who watch for evil, to do evil, shall be cut off. Well, Isaiah, he uses the words again, in that day. Verse 18, Isaiah is pointing forward, in that day. When is Isaiah talking about? Well, Jesus himself says these words. When John's 
John, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus. John's in prison, and they're carrying a message from John. Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus says, go tell John what you hear and see. I hear how these words reflect our passage. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Isaiah is looking forward to the messianic age, to the work of Jesus himself. I think it's probably, uh, there's several drop the mic moments in Jesus' ministry. But my, one of my, I think maybe my personal favorite is when Jesus in Luke 4 is in the temple. And he purposefully turns to the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's reading from Isaiah, quoting later on. But Isaiah's language reflects itself. I think this is Isaiah 61. And it reflects this language. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's savor. So Jesus reads this in Luke 4. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And I just, you know, it's a modern, it's a modern thing, but at that moment I just said, Jesus drops the mic. You know, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing because you are hearing what Isaiah prophesied about me. And so as a result of this, the disappointment that Jacob had is turned to pleasure. What do I mean by that? Let's look in verse, well, I don't know what verse, lost my page. Here we go. 29, look in verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in its midst, they will sanctify his name. So Isaiah begins to speak of Jacob. Jacob has died hundreds of years earlier. But But he speaks of Jacob as if he is looking on his people and his disappointment is turned to pleasure. We, some of you, a lot of people might say something along the lines of, oh, if our forefathers of this nation could only see what we'd become, they'd be rolling over in their graves, right? Well, Isaiah views, God views Jacob in the same sort of metaphorical way. Isaiah is ashamed of what Israel has become. They are blind, they don't see, they are, it's external religion only, nothing in the heart, and so his face is ashamed and pale. But it's God's revelation, it's the revelation of God's work that changes Jacob's attitude. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. So when Jacob, who is Jacob, who was called Israel, the father uh, of the 12 tribes, when he sees the work of, his, of God's hands, notice it's the work of God's hands, in his midst, they will sanctify my name. This causes pleasure. Isaiah is using Jacob as an illustration, the disappointment, rolling over in his grave. Ah, but when I change things, he will be pleased. Those 24, those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Now, 
God is talking about Jacob's children, the people of Israel. And of course, this applies to the nation. This applies to the church as a whole. But as I was reading through this passage, and it's talking about children and people who don't have understanding, who are blinded, I really, and even as Dale was praying earlier about children and parents, I really began to think about a more narrow, inclusive of the body of the church and the, and the nation, but the more narrow application this has to us as parents. Is the greatest desire of our heart to see our children have great success in their career, marry someone who's really well off, or is it to see them come to Christ? that they would sanctify the name of the Holy One of Jacob and stand in awe of the God of Israel. This is our greatest desire. It's not all the other externals. It's an internal heart change. And likewise, for you children, and when I say children, I should just say child of the church. Whether you're a little kid, whether you're a teen, whether you're someone who's just been in the church for a long time, this is a day when you can have understanding. It might have seemed like foolishness to you, this Christianity thing, but this is the wisdom of God. It's so simple. And this is for you. It's for you to trust and see and stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who go astray in spirit, you don't have to be astray in spirit anymore. God gives understanding. Those who murmur will accept instruction. 1 Corinthians reminds us that in the wisdom of the world doesn't know God. And God uses. Though the world did not know God in its wisdom, it pleased God in his wisdom to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching, through the foolishness of what we preach. This foolish message. And when I thought about the upside-downness of this all, how it just looks from the, from the world's perspective and even from our perspective at times, it just looks bleak. But God is working through this, a salvation. What's our primary example of this? It's the cross, isn't it? Leaf has been watching too much Aladdin lately. It's my fault. But a phrase in the movie that's used that, I, that this reminded me of is a diamond in the rough. And what do we mean when we use that phrase? Well, a diamond in the rough can mean several different things. Oftentimes, it's used to refer to a person that has a callous or unrefined exterior, but they're a gem of a person on the inside. But... It can also just refer to any situation that looks bleak, that looks rough, that looks hard, that looks like it's really of no value. But actually, it is a diamond. And that is what the crucifixion is itself. And isn't even that aspects of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth, Philip says? Isaiah says later, there, there was no attractiveness to his form. But who is it? He is the God-man, 
The crucifixion, this random no-name Jew from Israel is hung upon a cross, taken out so easily by the religious leaders, taken out so easily by the, by the Roman leaders. He dies on a cross. What is that? But see through that apparent destruction, through distress and apparent worthlessness, the apparent destruction of Christ, what is God working? The diamond of salvation, the most beautiful thing that we have. And so, again, we see not just a pattern in Isaiah 29, but a pattern throughout redemptive history, the pattern of the crucifixion itself, that this thing that appears so foolish and ridiculous and stupid actually is the wisdom of God, salvation provided through atonement, that sins are placed upon him. That's why he died. That righteousness is placed upon us. That's why he lived. That it comes through God and not through our work, not through our understanding, but God's understanding that he gives us. Some are blind to this, but let it be our prayer that we could see even more clearly every day that passes this diamond in the rough that is the crucifixion and that our love for God would be increased for working salvation through apparent destruction. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are faithful that though times may seem distressful and bleak and without hope, that you are using it, working through it for a purpose. We see that in the life of Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection, that through what looked to be so terrible, you worked so great a salvation. You continue to work this way in our lives even. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us the eyes of faith that you would enable us to have our eyes open to see your work and not be discouraged and to simply see the distress, but to be encouraged because we see your work of salvation. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.